I think this is a, a global phenomenon that the idea of taking medication still means that I'm sick. And I think that is something that is hard to tackle because it is, in fact, embedded in many cultures. So I spend time discussing the concept of prevention, that how we used to do things was we waited until someone got sick, and then we added therapy. But now we're smarter than that. Now we know that if we wait until someone gets sick and then we give them meds, that we have, in fact, wasted an opportunity that likely would existed 5, 10, 15 years prior to that particular illness having occurred. So we're smarter than that now. We now realize that using therapies that will prevent bigger problems down the road is a much smarter strategy than what we used to do. Welcome to Organ Stock, the podcast by the Boringa Ingelheim and Lily Alliance. Hello, my name is Professor Carolyn Lam, and today I will be hosting Organ Stock, the podcast episode entitled Diving Deeper into Type 2 Diabetes. People living with type 2 diabetes have a high burden of comorbidities and risk factors, which include retinopathy, nerve damage, heart and kidney disease. In fact, more than a third of adults with diabetes have been diagnosed with chronic kidney disease. Type 2 diabetes and kidney disease are also risk factors for the development of heart failure, and one in three people with heart failure are also living with kidney disease. Beyond the individual patient, there is a significant burden on health resources as well. Patients with microvascular complications use nearly twice the amount of healthcare resources compared with patients without these complications. In this episode, my guests and I take a closer look at type 2 diabetes and discuss the challenges around management of micro and macrovascular complications associated with type 2 diabetes. I am joined once again by nephrologist Professor Merlin Thomas from Australia and endocrinologist Dr. Alice Cheng from Canada. Both my guests are experts in their fields and have a wealth of experience caring for people living with type 2 diabetes, kidney disease, and in many cases, caring for people living with both these conditions. Merlin, Alice, welcome once again. Thanks, Carolyn, for having me on this podcast. It's really exciting to be here and to be talking about diabetic complications because that's something that both you and I are really passionate about. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast as well. My name is Alice Chang. I'm an endocrinologist from the University of Toronto, and it's a real pleasure to be here to discuss this important topic. So wonderful to have you both once again. Alice, could I start with a very basic question? In med school, we classified complications of type 2 diabetes into micro and macrovascular complications. So the question is, does this classification still stand? And could you please explain what's the difference between the two? So the classification does still stand, but like many things that we learned in medical school, there are exceptions to the rule and there are situations where obviously the two classifications can overlap significantly. However, generally speaking, they do still stand as separate classifications with the microvascular complications generally being thought of as the ones that affect the eyes, the kidneys, and the nerves, and then the macrovascular complications being those affecting larger blood vessels, so therefore the cardiovascular, cerebrovascular, and peripheral arterial diseases. 
Having said that, though, there is significant overlap because really our bodies are not truly divided into small vessels and big vessels. It's all one giant blood vessel, if you will, that sort of have different sections in different parts of the body. So the overlap sections, for example, in terms of complications would be something like erectile dysfunction, which would be an overlap between micro and macrovascular. Uh, foot complications are often an overlap between micro and macrovascular. Oh, I love how you explain that and especially put it in the context of a patient who usually has both. And I think that's one of the themes we're really going to talk about today, that interconnectivity, not just micro and macrovascular, but across different beds, organ beds. Let's start with diabetes and kidney disease and the overlap with there, the endocrine system and the renal system. So Merlin, from your experience as a nephrologist, how many of your patients have diabetes for me, diabetes is the number one cause of kidney failure, both in my country and in many countries. And many of the patients that are referred to me are as a result of long-standing effects of their diabetes. But increasingly, a lot of patients are presenting with newly diagnosed diabetes who have already got kidney problems. We just had this discussion about micro and macrovascular and saying how pathologically they're defined as different sites. So when you see the eye damaged, or as I do, the kidney damage, almost certainly the heart is damaged as well, whether within the muscle itself, in terms of diabetic cardiomyopathy, or indeed in the arteries and vessels that supply it in terms of coronary artery disease, peripheral arterial disease, or cerebrovascular disease, as Alice talked of before. So I really see them as, if you like, tissue-specific manifestations of the same problem, which is diabetic complications. Alice? As an endocrinologist, obviously I see a lot of people living with type 2 diabetes, and the presence of kidney disease is fairly common. It also very much depends on one's referral practice, I guess you will. So as an endocrinologist, I tend to see people who are further along in their type 2 diabetes journey. So I would say in my practice, if we use the usual definitions of chronic kidney disease, a good 40 to 50%, if not more, of my patients do have CKD. However, an interesting statistic from Canada, at least, looking at primary care database, where obviously there is a larger representation of people living with type 2 diabetes in terms of absolute numbers, the prevalence of chronic kidney disease was in the order of 25 to 30 percent. So it is there and it is common and it is something that we do need to be actively looking for in our patients living with type 2 diabetes. You know, I couldn't agree with both of you more. They're all interconnected, aren't they? Could I then ask you, how do you convey to your patients the interconnectedness? Because um, I think it's quite scary for some patients to hear, wait a minute, I came to you with just a simple problem of, of sugar. Why are you talking about my kidneys failing and my heart failing and everything else going wrong? Alice, could I start with you? How do you let patients understand how connected all these systems are and relate it back to sugar? That's a great question and, and such an important one to tackle because how we communicate with our patients, especially at the time of diagnosis, has a tremendous impact on how they do moving forward because that's sort of their first impression of whatever chronic disease state they have just been diagnosed with. So certainly from a 
glucose perspective, from a diabetes perspective, I explained to them that we define diabetes based on the level of glucose that is in the blood. And glucose is something that we all need to live, but when there's too much of it circulating, it can stick to things that perhaps it should not be sticking to. And as it sticks to different parts of the body, it can cause some damage. But because our body is really one giant blood vessel, you can think of it that way, you know that that sugar is going to go to all different parts where it could potentially stick. So for example, it can stick to the back of the eyes, it can stick to the blood vessels in the heart, it can stick to the vessels in the kidneys, in your lower extremities, etc. And therefore, if we take a positive slant on this, let's think about the opportunities to intervene early so that there is less opportunity for sugar to stick to things. So that's sort of how I tend to explain it from the beginning is putting it in the context of why we called it diabetes from a sugar perspective and the fact that sugar can stick on things, which can then ultimately cause issues, but that we're all one giant blood vessel, so that's why it seems to go everywhere. So that's kind of how I typically explain it early on when the diagnosis is being made. I love it. We're all one giant blood vessel. <laughs> I might steal that from you again, Alice, yet another line. Uh, but but Merlin, um, so you're seeing patients um, in your practice probably with kidney disease. How do you relate it to diabetes and, you know, explain why you have to maybe look at their heart as well? How do you express it to your patients? I get a real sense that the management of diabetes is changed in a big way over the last few years. And you've seen that in guidelines and in clinical practice. And also we're now seeing it in the way we communicate through to our, our patients, because our main priority actually isn't controlling their sugar levels, getting their A1C on target. Our main priority is actually preventing and in many cases, managing complications. To do that, Obviously, you need to know the kind of patient who's in front of you. As a nephrologist, the kind of patient who's in front of me is someone who's got kidney disease, which means they've probably got heart disease, which means they've probably got eye disease, which means they've probably got erectile dysfunction and all sorts of other problems as well. And so my job is not to say where is the sugar and how I can bring it down, but how I can best reduce their risks of getting into trouble. And the major things that people get into trouble of are things like major cardiac events, renal failure, hospitalization for heart failure, and of course, sudden death. Now, that's how I'm prioritizing the management. And the real advantage that we have now is that by identifying individuals who are complicated with cardiac disease, with heart failure, and indeed with renal disease, we can say these patients are high risk of bad things happening and therefore explain to them why we're adding in agents, not just for glucose control, but to keep them out of harm's way. And that's my priority. Merlin, you've touched on so many important points here that I want to unpack. So the first thing is that prevention of a complication. I, I have a saying sometimes, I've never had a patient thank me for a hospitalization avoided. The point is patients really have to understand that they don't 
feel they're high sugar, but it's all a sign that they do still need to take their medications for the prevention of complications. How do you manage to get your patients to adhere to therapies when they're feeling okay? And it's to avoid not feeling okay. Well, the, the good thing is that we have we have a lot of things, for example, we have risk calculators, which in Australian practice, you know, you just put in their details and then it brings up a, a level of their risk. Well, when you see the dial in someone with renal disease or cardiac disease reaching the red zone and they're clearly high risk, the patient goes, wow, this is something that means something to me. And then when you show when their cholesterol gets lower, their blood pressure gets lower, and you can add in other agents, showing that risk going down, they can say, hey, actually adding in that statin or that other kind of glucose lowering agent that might lower cardiovascular risk or adding in half an aspirin or, or blood pressure lowering therapy a little bit more aggressive, you can see the dial coming down. You can use risk as a way of encouraging patient, yes, you're at high risk, but I can reduce your risk by a third to a half by you taking this medication. And therefore we get adherence through recognizing risk and we get the number needed to treat down because we're treating individuals who are most at risk in the most aggressive way we can. And if I may add to that, Carolyn, I would say that when I'm explaining a new offering to a patient, I've made it a point now to start with the rationale why in terms of I'd like to offer you this therapy to reduce your risk of X, cardiovascular disease, renal disease, whatever the case may be. And as long as you have a heart or as long as you have kidneys or as long as you have a brain, you should continue this therapy because it's providing protection. So in other words, I've sort of changed the framing of some of our therapies from the specific risk factor or surrogate marker that's being reduced to the real end goal, which is reduction of the outcome. Because then it avoids the issue of someone coming back, their numbers have improved, so now they wish to discontinue whichever therapy it was that we had in fact offered in the first place. But Alice, you really prioritize that approach in someone who you identify at risk in someone other, for example, who's got complications. I mean, in low risk patients, it really doesn't matter what you do, except for the fact that they're adherent to therapy. But in high risk patients, it's all about playing that risk benefit game and really encouraging them to not only recognize their risk, but understand that by taking medication, you can significantly reduce that risk. And that's the reason that I'm offering you these pills or or this target for therapy, because I believe that by doing that, you can more likely to live longer, more likely to stay out of hospital, more likely to feel better in the long run. Oh, I love that reframing. I want to go a bit further because one question I always get here in my patients is this. Okay, so I'll take this medication, it'll reduce my sugar, but then does that mean now I have to take it for the rest of my life? What do you say to that? It's almost like they didn't understand the purpose, right, of taking the medication in the first place. Could you tell me how you would manage that question, Alice? I get that question a lot as well, and it reflects, 
I think from a societal perspective, and I think this is a, a global phenomenon, that the idea of taking medication still means that I'm sick. And I, I think that is something that is hard to tackle because it is, in fact, uh, embedded in many cultures. So I spend time discussing the concept of prevention, that how we used to do things was we waited until someone got sick, and then we added therapy. But now we're smarter than that. Now we know that if we wait until someone gets sick and then we give them meds that we have, in fact, wasted an opportunity that likely would existed 5, 10, 15 years prior to that particular illness having occurred. So we're smarter than that now. We now realize that using therapies that will prevent bigger problems down the road is a much smarter strategy than what we used to do. So do you need to take this medication forever? Well, if we're using it from a preventative perspective, and we're trying to protect certain organs, then we're back to the idea that as long as you have those organs, we would like to protect them. Now, obviously, it depends on what specific therapy we are talking about. So I always promise that I will reevaluate things each and every visit. However, I'm also not going to do you a disservice by prematurely discontinuing anything because then I'm also not doing you any favors. So let's make a deal. As long as you have these organs, we're going to want to protect them. But I also promise that each and every time we will reevaluate to see if that risk still requires the protection to occur. But if there was an, an interval for remission, if there was an opportunity, it, it's right at the beginning. So if you're going to say, you know, there is a chance that you can come off medication. It's not going to be someone who's had 10, 20 years of diabetes. It's going to be someone right at the beginning who's starting their first medication, who's clearly, and in most cases is overweight, in which very significant weight loss and very significant changes in lifestyle can occasionally see this. And we've all got one person in our practice who's discovered the bicycle or swimming or always had bariatric surgery. And you go, wow, I wish everyone could be like this. And it may be in the future, we'll have other tools at our disposal. But I do think that right at the beginning, we need to be able to encourage our patients to do whatever they can to lose excess weight and increase their physical activity. And some people can maybe not avoid medication, but certainly avoid additional medication for a significant um, period of time. But for the most of our patients that we see, and certainly all of the patients that I get referred, it's way too late to get the beta cells out of their fat-induced coma. They, they're never going to come out of that. So all we have to do is supplement their absence by medication to achieve as much control as we can get. Now, I, I want to switch tracks a bit and consider the amazing times we're living in now with the COVID pandemic and so on. And it seems a lot of patients are left to manage their own conditions with maybe remote or telehealth or telemonitoring uh, from us. However, could you maybe speak on how do you enable your patients you know, who are struggling with, with the mental health challenges of social isolation sometimes and of having to care more for themselves. Merlin? I'd hoped they were already managing for themselves. I think it's so important that self-management, even before COVID, is really essential. And people who aren't self-managing tend to be 
non-adherent tend to be missing things um, overall. And so the real utility is that for every newly diagnosed patient, whether in 2021 or any time before or after this time, that early education and early empowerment is so critical. As Alice was talking of before, one of the important things is obviously understanding risk. But the other important thing for long-term adherence is confidence. Not just confidence in that your doctor's making the right decision, but confidence that you can do it too. And instilling that right at the beginning by a period of education, of reminders, of reinforcement is so critical. Because if you get it right at the beginning, they can be fantastic patients all the way through. But if you lose track, then you can never really get it back in terms of the legacy that that poor control or that questioning of of their adherence um, and their confidence in therapy. You can never get confidence back in therapy once it wanes. And if I may add, I, I think the mental health piece is is so important with every chronic disease. And we know lots of data looking at diabetes and the relationship with depression as well as anxiety and diabetes distress. And I think we as practitioners in diabetes need to recognize that. Uh, we don't need to all become mental health experts. I, I certainly am not, and I rely heavily on my colleagues who are. But I think my job to screen, my job to ask, is important so that I can help identify somebody who may require uh, the assistance of one of my colleagues who are more expert in mental health treatment. And I certainly begin every visit uh, with a, how are you? How's life going? That sounds like a very simple thing. But often, you know, we, we say, hi, how are you? But we're not actually asking, how are you? We're kind of just, uh, it's sort of a nicety that we say. But in the context of a visit, I'm actually asking, how are you and how is life going? And it really helps put the context of what I'm about to hear from a medical perspective in place, because whatever happened in life, they perhaps lost their job or or something happened in their family, or, or perhaps they had a birth of a grandchild, like happy things, not happy things. But it's so important to understand what's happened in life in the last three to six months since I last saw you, that it really helps put a, a frame on everything I'm about to hear. And if something major in life occurred that was, let's say, negative, then okay, sure, the A1C went up, blood pressure went up a bit, lipids went up a bit. It's not that I ignore those things, but the way we have that conversation is going to need to be different. So it's so important to begin a visit with a simple question, like, how is life? What's happened in the last six months? Yeah, health is so much a bigger picture than glucose control, isn't it? And that sometimes we we get so caught up in getting good control or getting good blood pressure or getting good lipids, that it's the big picture that really sometimes matters. And certainly for many of our patients, it's the major determinant of their quality of life and outcomes that they can feel happy and confident in who they are and what's going on in their life. I love how both of you just really highlighted that looking at a patient in context and as a whole means looking at that interconnectivity of all the different organ systems and even putting that in context of a patient's social, cultural, emotional well-being. Just a couple of final questions for you both, if you don't mind. I'd love to hear from each of you what you think is the top challenge or unmet need you have, you face, treating patients with type 2 diabetes and their complications. What do you think is the greatest unmet need? Merlin? 
I think the number one priority in most people with diabetes is adherence. All of these different pills and all of these different educations and all of these different plans, it's tough for doctors, let alone for the patients. We must find ways to help our patients cooperate. And really that involves not just medicines, but education, but listening and caring and interacting with them in a, in a very holistic way so that they're confident about what they're doing and you're confident what they're doing. And the best way to do that is essentially by prescribing medicines that you know and have seen in trials that are not only safe, but also get the control that you want and achieve the outcomes that you want. And that's what we are really in a position now to do, that the doctors can feel really confident that the medicines they prescribed are going to work. And if we can convey that to their patients and our patients can feel confident in that and they can take them without experiencing too many side effects, there's even polypills now that are, you know, mixing them all together to make it really easy. So I think the future of managing diabetes is long-term adherence with drugs that we can feel confident that won't cause problems and that are easy to take. And that'll mean they'll take them for long-term and they'll stay out of harm's way, hopefully, for the long-term as well. And Alice, so I, I think Merlin really addressed kind of two questions in one there, you know, the greatest unmet need and what the future holds. Do you think you could share your thoughts on both as well, Alice? So I would certainly agree with the activation slash engagement of our patients is definitely an unmet need. And, and the issue lies often with us as healthcare providers and how we're communicating. But I would also say from a societal perspective that there is a lot of educating and a framing that could be changed. But perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll take a different position so that we don't re repeat ourselves, I would say another unmet need is actually communication within the healthcare system, communication within the healthcare team, and better delineation of roles and responsibilities. Uh, because it's not uncommon that a particular individual is referred to a specialist, and then primary care is somehow taken out of the loop, which should never happen. Uh, or there's a sense of, okay, well, I'm not going to do this or adjust that because you're already being seen by uh, Dr. X. And then Dr. X doesn't do something thinking that Dr. Y is doing it. And, and sometimes there's that miscommunication and not working as well as a team as we ought to. And I think that is something that we should fix. And in some ways, this pandemic has improved certain aspects of communication. I think that the push to virtual care, the push to greater technology use uh, has been something we've needed as a medical community, but it can certainly get better. And of course, it's not just communication amongst the physicians, but everyone else involved in the healthcare team, the pharmacists, the nurses, the dietitians, a social worker, et cetera, et cetera. So that is something that we definitely do need to work on and something that I look forward to the day when we all have one shared electronic system and a lot of the repeated work doesn't have to happen and that we truly collaborate as more of a team with the person living with the chronic disease in the center of that team. I think that's another critical piece to it. Oh, I love that patient-centric focus. I don't think any of us could have said that better. Um, and just 
leaves me to really thank you, Merlin and Alice, for sharing your thoughts today. I think we covered a lot talking about type 2 diabetes and how we've gone from micro and macrovascular complications to really recognizing the interconnectedness of all of that across the organ systems of heart, kidney, metabolic, endocrine systems, how we all need to work together, how we all need to understand what the patient is facing and support that patient in many ways. Could I ask you both to maybe end with some concluding uh, messages? Sure, thank you. I, I would say that we need to stop thinking in silos. As I simplistically said near the beginning, we're just you know one giant blood vessel and everything is very much interconnected. So we need to make sure that we're thinking in a multi-organ system way so that we initiate appropriate therapies, be they pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic, that will help address everything. But again, recognizing that this is, a, this is a person, this is a person living with said chronic disease. So we need to understand the context of that individual, communicate more effectively with that individual so that we can in fact collaborate as a team. Love it. And Merlin? I like thinking of diabetes much like a, if you like, a game of golf. There's different kinds of games depending on the kind of situation you find yourself in. Sometimes you're playing a, a sh what's called a short game, where your priority is hitting the target, which is, for example, in diabetes, being alive, being healthy, out of hospital, without significant complications. And so you play the short game in individuals that you've identified that are at risk for who have or who have already got complications of their illness. So someone with kidney disease, someone with eye disease, someone with heart failure or cardiovascular disease, you're playing a short game. So you prioritize in that person aggressive therapy aiming for and using agents that reduce complications such as death or major events. In other individuals, of course, who are relatively low risk, you're not aiming for the target. And if you like, you're playing the long game, which is not aiming for the target, but actually positioning yourself so that you can hit the target later on. In golf, this is called a layup. So essentially, you're aiming for a nice, clean fairway somewhere out of the rough, out of trouble in which you can be sure to hit the target in the future. So you've got a legacy for making it easy for you in the future. And in many patients we're seeing with early diabetes who are recently diagnosed, who have got very few complications, it's all about setting a pattern of confidence, adherence, and as Alice says, communication that positions them so that they can avoid complications in the future, or if they occur, then they can be identified early and addressed in a more aggressive way by, if you like, adding in the short game on top of the long game. It's the kind of thing that we find ourselves in. It was all about glucose before. Now, diabetes is all about identifying the kind of game we're playing and prioritizing the kind of medicines that play different games appropriately, whether aiming for the target in the short game or aiming for long-term adherence and efficacy in the long game. Wow, thank you so much, Merlin and Alice. I personally have learned so much. Um, we'll, we'll take that home with us for sure. We're all one big blood vessel and we gotta excel at both the short and long game of this golf diabetes game. So <laughs> thank you, thank you both so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to Organ Stock, the podcast by the Boringa Ingelheim and Lily Alliance. This episode was on diving deeper into type 2 diabetes, where I, Professor Carolyn Lam, was joined by Professor Merlin Thomas and Dr. Alice Cheng. Don't forget to click subscribe or follow to listen to our next episode. <laughs>